I think we've all experienced that moment when someone deflates our idea or tells us it was stupid or sends us back to work on what we were told to do. You know, new ideas are often too risky or we hear just work on what we talked about or we'll just do this one the way we've always done everything else. Let's not rock the boat. Well, doesn't that make you never want to volunteer a new solution again? Right there is the example of psychological safety not existing. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 76 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. You can find the show notes for this episode at alltheresponsibility.com slash 76. Now this episode, I'm going to talk about psychological safety. Really interesting topic, not that well known, and I always like to bring new ideas for how we can be more effective, create more value as product managers in teams of people that are creating amazing solutions to important problems and taking those to market. So today's topic, psychological safety. You know, we always say what we want in business is innovation, new thinking, new solutions to old problems, new solutions to new problems. But in too many companies and within many companies in the cultures of individual groups, there's no psychological safety. New ideas, unless they're pristine and will obviously work, are pushed down or not approved. And that's not a great situation to create value in. You know, it can be the death of creativity, innovation, motivation, and growth, both for you and your team. Now, if you put yourself in the manager's shoes, which as a product manager happens a lot, really, right? Imagine your team's working on a new feature, and one of the engineers comes to you with an idea about how it might be implemented in a new way. Well, you may immediately see several problems with this idea, but there might be a core concept that's useful. And, of course, you're really happy, I hope, that your engineer is trying to be innovative. What you say in that moment can have a big impact on the psychological safety that this engineer feels and the psychological safety of the whole team. As an individual contributor product manager, you might think psychological safety, building it and encouraging it, is kind of outside your bailiwick. And I understand that, but you're kind of wrong in two ways. We actually have two prime opportunities to work on psychological safety in our organizations. One is actually on our own psychological safety. I'll talk a little bit more about that toward the end. But we definitely have a big impact on the psychological safety of our teams and colleagues. We're individual contributors, of course, but we're also leaders and example setters. Our teams look up to us. Our colleagues respect us and often look to us for clues of behavior, not least because we're the experts in our product, both in using it and selling and marketing it. Organizational behavioral scientist Amy Edmondson of Harvard was the first person to introduce this concept of psychological safety in a team. She defined it as a shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. Meaning, the team members feel that the other team members have their back, won't ridicule them, won't cut them down. But a lot of teams don't really have psychological safety, and some of the symptoms of people not feeling psychologically safe is things like they don't tell you what they're doing or they're defensive when you ask them about what they're working on. Maybe they don't help each other all the time or they stick to old ideas and won't go out on a limb or take a chance or give a new idea, even if they happen to have one. They don't speak up or they feel they will be attacked if they present a new idea. Now, these are all big problems for organizations that want to create innovation. And A lot of these will also just make a workplace actually toxic to work in. Not just that it's not 
productive as it could be or as effective, but that it's actually negative for people's experiences. So these things are problematic for making progress, for creating innovations, all that kind of thing. I started thinking about psychological safety in the context of product management when I was reading Think Like a Rocket Scientist, a book by Ozan Verrill, who was a rocket scientist. Now he's an author and an advisor and a coach. And he tells the story of how he learned about the idea of psychological safety. He says, when I first heard the term, I instinctively dismissed it as woo-woo. It conjured images of employees sitting around a conference table, joining hands and sharing their feelings. But after studying the research, I backed down. The supporting evidence is rock solid. Psychological safety means, in Edmondson's words, no one will be punished or humiliated for errors, questions, or requests for help in the service of reaching ambitious performance goals. Now, in short, psychological safety means, can we take risks on this team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? You know, Google did a famous research project in 2014 called Project Aristotle to understand the characteristics of, that go into making a high-performance team. The Aristotle name came from a famous quote from probably the most famous intellectual in history, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So the team started their research with many initial assumptions, in particular that the makeup and intellectual level of the team the mix of programming languages, educational accomplishments, personality styles, was going to be the primary determinant. Well, it turned out that how the team members interact has a much, much bigger impact than who is on the team. Of all the factors, psychological safety was the biggest contributor to team effectiveness. And they said in the report, there's a, and I'll put a link to the report in the show notes, psychological safety was far and away the most important of the five dynamics we found. It's the underpinning of the other four. How could that be? Well, taking a risk around your team members seems simple, but remember the last time you were working on a project, did you feel you could ask what the goal was without the risk of sounding like you're the only one out of the loop? Or did you offer continuing without clarifying anything in order to avoid being perceived as someone who is unaware? There's a lot more good stuff in that report from Google. So perhaps you will agree by now that psychological safety is important, but you're a product manager, an individual contributor, not a manager. What can you do about it? Well, again, as individuals, as product managers, we don't have much authority. That's the title of this podcast. But we often have a lot of influence. We probably have nearly as much influence in reality as anyone in the organization. I mean, we're among the most influential, particularly once you are established with the team and have built your credibility and trustworthiness. So Edmondson has a TED Talk, a TEDx Talk, about how to build psychological safety in your team, she offers three simple things individuals can do. One is to frame the work as a learning problem, not as an execution problem. One is to acknowledge your own fallibility. And the third is to model curiosity and ask lots of questions. So let's dive into this a bit more and think about how that might apply as a product manager in our influential position on the team. I think there's also a reason to think about the things you don't want to do, not just the things to do. And so, for example, I really try, as a product manager working with my team, I try to not allocate blame. I suggest not teasing people about mistakes or problems. A lot of people take teasing really seriously, and it can really impact their mental well-being. And don't call decisions, at least those made within the team, bad or misguided. You could say that maybe about your own, but not those of other people. So what should you do instead? 
Well, one of the top things, I think, and it's an easy thing to do, and it's really worthwhile, is praise. And you can praise people for a lot of stuff on Teams. I think you actually should praise people just for trying. It's kind of a participation award, and I know those have a bad connotation, but the reality is the kind of work we do, just getting up every day to work on it is a really big accomplishment. The kind of work we do where we create new stuff every day, simply participating is going out on a limb. None of your developers, none of the work your developers are doing is rote. It's all new invention. It all requires them to apply their creative brain power to a complex situation to solve a problem. Even something that seems really simple, like opening a file for reading. Well, in an enterprise application, you have to put a bunch of error handling around that. Every line of code, you have to think about, well, what could possibly go wrong here and how can I protect against that? Even the simplest thing they work on, it has dependencies on other code, dependencies which aren't always known. And even if they are known, the knowledge is often wrong. It has error conditions and corner cases that have to be handled. This is usually true of even the simplest changes. And the point is that any change one of your developers makes can have potentially bad consequences. And so that person is always facing a risk for every step, step they take. So simply participating and not throwing up their hands, I think is an accomplishment and is worthy of praise. Now, obviously, if they do something that is even bigger than just coming to work every day, even more reason to praise. I do want to point out that this is not true just for the developers, but also for your testers. If you have a team, like most of us have teams, where there's both developers and testers, I think there are some super special agile teams that might not have this breakdown, at least according to the mythology of the agile elders. I haven't experienced that myself in 25 years in enterprise software. But in the ideal world, testers validate that the developers wrote the code correctly and considered all the corner cases. Of course, the developers often don't consider all the corner cases, and it's up to your testers, who have amazing insights and skills of their own, to figure out the corner cases and test them to make sure everything works as expected. A good tester will think of so many ways to break the developer's code, it makes your head spin. And of course, what happens to them if they don't find that one corner case that causes customers to have problems? Don't they even test this thing the customer, the salesperson, or the executive will say, or ask, or shout? And of course, if the testers do find problems, what do the developers think about that? Oh, they just found another problem. That's all they do. They find problems all the time. There's a sword of Damocles hanging over the heads of the testers in both directions all the time, right? They don't necessarily want to make the developers mad by finding lots of bugs, but they have to in order to make sure that the customers don't get mad. It's another situation where everything that they do is kind of fraught. The next thing to think about is praising people for trying something new and experimenting and asking questions. Even if the question might seem dumb, even if the experiment fails, even if the thing that they're trying doesn't work, because you don't make progress without doing new stuff. I'm thinking about this in terms of something my team is working on right now, the testers in fact, is automatically creating more test data. They have to do a lot of it manually by hand. It's just the nature of things. But they're trying to think of ways to automate that. And some of the things they're going to try are not going to work. But I want them to keep trying until they can get this done because it's going to be really valuable. But there's going to be a lot of failures on the way. But I continually to continually praise them and encourage them and ask them questions about what they're doing. And I sound pretty naive often in those situations as well. So we want to encourage them to try new things while reassuring them that they're safe to do so. This is kind of hard. 
people often won't believe it when you say it. And there's multiple reasons they won't believe it. They're worried that if they have a bad idea that they'll get ridiculed. They'll worry about efficiency. So let's just go with the idea we already have. It'll take a little less time. They worry about their supervisor's perception of efficiency and the potential loss of velocity. Now, I recommend listening back to the previous podcast episode. I'll put a link in the show notes where I talk about how your processes are not good if they prevent you from doing the best work. And worrying about velocity is a symptom of your process being more important than the outcomes of the process, which is getting value to market. That's an episode called The Dangers of Processes and Predictions. And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. One thing also to remember to help build psychological safety is remember that people are really doing their best. You know, no matter how much your team gets done in a sprint or in a release, they're working as fast as they can and as effectively as they can. Now, it might not seem like it, but they are. Their output is what it is, and in most cases, they couldn't have gone any faster than they did. Now, sometimes there are structural impediments to them going faster, but those aren't their fault. For example, in one company, we had a lot of problems keeping our test environments running. We had a very complex enterprise software application with dozens of moving parts, and sometimes they just didn't actually move when they were supposed to, particularly in the test environment. And this meant the team could not get as much done as they thought they would be able to, or would have been able to. And it's especially important not to blame the team in this kind of situation. Now, a side note on this, you have to go to bat for your team when there's a perception that they are going slowly. You have to defend their honor, and they have to be confident that you will do so. And again, this will help build psychological safety. Now, in another sense, you are also able to act as the spiritual shepherd of your team. What do I mean by that? It's not a woo-woo thing but in a way where you should be thinking about their welfare because only healthy teams can perform well over time, meaning can deliver the stuff to market that you want them to deliver. You know, I have another podcast episode about how can I help my team go faster. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. The answer in that podcast, of course, is that they can only go as fast as they can. If you try to get them to go faster than they can, then disaster will occur because you can't go faster than you can go. And there are ways to, over time, slowly increase the speed of your team, right? By learning more effectively, by building better tools and making sure environments work right. And a lot of things you can do over time. But you're never going to double the speed of your team, most likely. But you can make it go faster. A much more important thing is to make sure that they're working effectively at whatever speed they can go. And so they're not, and that they're not wasting time. Again, that's actually on you. Are you giving them the right things to work on? that create the most value in the market. So that's a bunch of things you can do with your team to help build their psychological safety. Now there's other things that managers of the team should be doing, right? You're sort of an outsider, even on your dev team, but you do have a lot of influence and the way that you interact with them can actually build that up a lot. But there's another whole aspect of psychological safety that I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about. And it's it may be a weird idea. I'm not sure it's even correct in some sense. But I'm thinking about having psychological safety within yourself. Now, this is really important for product managers because of the type of role product management is, right? We are members of teams. We're members of our development team, as I mentioned. Not that we have authority over them, but we have a lot of influence over them. Of course, we're also members of the product management team overall. If you're in a big organization, there's likely to be multiple product managers and you're a member of that team. But a lot of what we do is 
as an individual contributor who interacts with lots of other people, none of whom think of themselves as our team. So none of whom, even if they know about psychological safety, think about our psychological safety, the psychological safety of the product manager. And of course, we product managers are kind of the hard men of the world as well. Anyway, we, we're, we know everything. We have this big, long reach. We have lots of responsibility and lots of influence across the company. So, and you know, we're always acting tough <laughs> in the sense of we always, we don't say no. And so I think that most other people that we work with, particularly if they're not on our dev team specifically, are not that concerned about our psychological safety. But I think we have an opportunity to work on our own psychological safety. You have to build psychological safety in yourself. And what do I mean by that? Two of the fundamental characteristics of product managers are the ability to make decisions and the flexibility of mind, what I call the flexibility of mind, to realize that you made a bad decision and reverse it. And that takes psychological safety from yourself. You know, as I was reading the section of Verrill's book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, about psychological safety, I started to think that I have some built-in psychological safety. It was kind of just a feeling at the time, but I realized it was worth exploring, and that's what really led to this podcast episode. We talk about psychological safety in the context of teams, and of course, we're part of two teams, as I mentioned. But in reality, we have this third role that's equal in importance to our roles on those other teams, possibly more important, which is the lone wolf, right? We're the decider and the undecider, as I mentioned. We're the person who pulls all the information sources and all the insights together to make product decisions. We have to manage ourselves, and one aspect of that is understanding that a failure does not make you a failure, that mistakes happen, and that we can learn from them. When I go to present a new product idea to an executive team, they're not really thinking about my psychological safety in most cases. When I give a demo to a prospect or talk to a customer about some upcoming features, they're not going to protect my psychological safety. They're going to tell me their true reactions, and that might very well include calling me stupid or unaware or a bad thinker or a bad listener. So how do I maintain my effectiveness in the case that I'm getting all of this negativity coming in? And how does psychological safety play into this? Well, at the moment, in these contexts, I'm a team of one. It's just me, myself, and I. Who's going to attack me on this little team? I am. Who's going to blame me or disapprove of me or tell me I'm stupid? I am. I mean, I might have heard it also from external people, but in terms of maintaining my effectiveness, I want to build up some psychological safety within my own head. There's a, actually a great term from Buddhism about this. It's called the second arrow, and we want to avoid that second arrow. Often we can't avoid the first arrow, the one that comes from outside us. Whether it's frustration or anger or even a physical attack, somebody shoots an arrow at us. But the second arrow, the one that we shoot at ourselves as a result, we do have the power to avoid that one. And so a really good kind of mantra to think about is avoid the second arrow. That's the one that you shoot at yourself in response to your own bad feelings about something else that happened externally. Patrick Buggy, who is the creator of the site Mindful Ambition, says, when we judge ourselves for experiencing negative feelings, it's like we're shooting a second arrow right at the spot where the first arrow struck great way of putting it. So I'll put a link to that site in the show notes as well. So I'm going to try to treat myself the way that I might treat a team member. No blame. I don't blame myself, even if I do take responsibility for my actions and decisions and mistakes, but I don't blame myself for those. I just say, oh, that was a mistake, and I move on. And I try not to bury myself in blame for that. I also do a little bit of praising of myself for taking a chance or going out on a limb or 
achieving something meaningful and potentially challenging. Maybe just for showing up, right? I recognize myself for just showing up because sometimes that's hard enough. And this has actually been especially true the last year. Not that I've had it at all hard compared to many, many people, but even so, I want to understand and believe that I myself am going as fast as I can. Even if I feel like I could be going faster, I'm not going to shoot myself, shoot arrows at myself about this. It releases me in some sense from the impediments of my belief about what I should be doing and I recognize what I am doing. I also try to be willing to question anything, even if it makes me potentially look dumb or if I worry that it might make me feel dumb. And this is both in the context of things that I should actually be the expert on and things that somebody else might think I'm, I'm an expert on, but I'm, but I'm actually not. So I, I want to always be questioning, is my thinking clear on this? I, th I come up with an idea. I have some reasons to think it's a good idea. I always want to go back and check, do I really know everything that I think I do? Should I apply some child's, child's mind to that? Should I ask some dumb questions just to see if I'm really correct? You know, there's a bunch of other things that I mentioned earlier about interacting with your team that you can apply to interacting with yourself. Now, of course, just as with a team, if you're going to do that successfully as a leader of yourself, you may have to build some credibility initially with yourself again. And you need to continue to create credibility despite making some mistakes. And what that means is it's much easier to build psychological safety with yourself if you can trust that you are trying to have integrity, that you do have some good insights into the product and into customers and things like that. So you want to, you're not going to let yourself completely off the hook for not having all the stuff going on. But if you know that you do, if you know, you know, I'm a pretty good product manager, I do understand where our customers are coming from, I have empathy, I'm a good thinker, I understand the technology, then don't shoot arrows at yourself for little things that might go wrong. Let's talk about three things you can start doing today to put these ideas into practice. It's a short list, short and sweet. First of all, understand psychological safety. Super important concept. I talked about it in the context of the team, the dev team that we work with. I talked about it in the context of ourselves. You can also think about it in the context of your customers, particularly if you have an enterprise software. Your users are going to often be worried about clicking that button, that it's going to do something bad, particularly when they're first learning your product. And that's another place where you might think about, how can I make my users feel safe, <laughs> that they're not going to get ridiculed for clicking a button, or they're not going to mess a bunch of stuff up, or they're not going to... There's not going to be negative consequences for using your product in some way. So another little thing to think about. The second thing is, of course, practice building psychological safety with your dev team and with the other teams you work with, as I listed out earlier. And, of course, third, practice building your own internal psychological safety. That's going to help you be more effective. It's going to keep you from getting depressed about things when they go wrong. It's going to keep your cognitive resources focused on improving rather than on judging yourself. It's very important. So I mentioned several resources and books and previous podcasts in this episode. And of course, you can find links to all of them in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 76. You'll also find links to subscribe to the podcast on all the different services. When you subscribe, you get notified when new episodes come out, which is roughly every two weeks in 2020, hopefully roughly every two weeks in 2021. There's a lot more on the show notes page, including how to get in touch with me directly comment section love to hear from you and hear what your your thoughts about psychological safety or whatever else you want to talk to me about 
I hope this set of ideas about psychological safety, how to help your team build it, how to maintain it in your team, and how to use the concept for yourself, hope these prove inter interesting and valuable to you. Let me know. Leave me a comment. Drop me a line. There's lots of ways to connect to me. I just would really like to hear what you think about it. If you, I, I think this is a new and interesting way of thinking about psychological safety of an individual person, meaning the product manager. So let me know if that resonates. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope it's a great investment of your time. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.